Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing this fine New Year's Day? Yeah, great. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, sir. Um, do you have New Year's resolutions? Are you the kind of person who makes those? No, I didn't. You say that as if I don't you really. usually do. You don't really. I don't really, no. What was the last time you made a New Year's resolution, if, it, if at all? I don't remember. Because my theory go. is, it's always the right time to do the right thing. Like, yes, why sir. wait? Why yes, like sir. synchronize it to a calendar? Yes, absolutely. This is also my least favorite time of the year to be at the gym. Like, <laughs> I can't tell. Because you, you go to the gym all year round, and then and in then January, at the beginning of the year, you just see all these we call them resolutioners that just <laughs> come into the gym and like take up all the machines. They don't know what they're doing. They're usually just squatting on the machines on their phones all the time. Fortunately, out here, everything is closed until the 7th, so I don't think I'm going to have a problem with resolutioners this year. Oh, good. Anyway, let's go ahead and get started, because according to our little pre-production meeting we just had, we have a lot to go over, and not a lot of time to go over these 26 verses that are on the schedule for this week's Come Follow Me. For those of y'all who don't know, we are in Joseph Smith History, verses 1 through 26, wherein we will be covering, or at least the verses will be covering, uh, Joseph Smith's family history, like where his family went and all that stuff, the religious and social setting of the... Uh, of the time that Joseph Smith received the first vision in, of course, the first vision itself, and then his reaction to the persecution he ended up receiving as a result of sharing his experience of the first vision. But before we get to that, just wanted to let you guys know that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts and culture find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network that's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network Derek what you got for uh, context that you want to put on these uh, passages we're about to read yeah okay so you know what the second great awakening is right yes it's when the first cup of coffee doesn't work I walked right into that. <laughs> I'm so mad at myself. I am so mad at myself. For that. I walked right into it. Okay, so the new second, year, new jokes. Second Great Awakening was a um, a period of revivalistic fervor. Many denominations were capitalizing on a, a wellspring of religious curiosity and fervor, and that is the culture within which the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was born. This is the background to the first vision. It is the catalyst for why Joseph wanted to know which tr churches were true. He was going to all these revival meetings, caught up in all these things, wanting to know what's going on with all of that. And I want to connect the Second Great Awakening and sort of this with romanticism and the Romantic Era poets. And I don't know if James is going to like what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. About to say, where are we going with this? So the Enlightenment was all about balance and reason and skepticism and critical thinking and rationality, intellectualism, scholarship, um, all of those things. But the Romantic era was somewhat of a pushback against that. It got back out into nature rather than into the library. It was getting into the emotions rather than just the reason. And some of this is a little generalization, but there's something real there. 
you can be passionately absorbed in to your experience in nature or your experience with emotion or your experience with subjectivity, whereas the Enlightenment was all about objectivity, the, the bare facts and what's going on. But there's room for the passions, the supernatural, the emotions, all of those types of things within Romantic era poets. Mm. And in, so somewhat, in some ways, the Second Great Awakening was a reaction to the deism that had cropped up during the Enlightenment era shortly before that. And, you know, Joseph talks about this. He uses the phrases unusual excitement, great zeal, and ref religious feeling throughout this text that we have before us. This whole celebration of emotion over substance and nature over technology really comes through in three Romantic-era poets that I'm going to talk about. The first one is William Wordsworth. And I, it's important the dates that these were published. So this is, was his ode, The Intimations of Immortality, published in 1807. Here's what Wordsworth says. Oh, but before I get to that, here's what Wordsworth said about what he said. He <laughs> I, said, I do not profess to give a literal representation of the state of the affections and of the moral being in childhood. I record my feelings at that time, my absolute spirituality, my all-soulness, if I may so speak. So here's what he says. In a thousand valleys far and wide, fresh flowers, while the sun shines warm, and the babe leaps up on his mother's arm, I hear, I hear, with joy I hear. But there's a tree of many, one, a single field which I have looked upon. Both of them speak of something that is gone. The pansy at my feet doth the same tale repeat. Whither is fled the visionary gleam? Where is it now, the glory and the dream? So what he's saying is all this nature reminds me of something gone, right? And where has this visionary gleam gone? Where did it flared, fled to? Where did it flee to? And where is it now? It must be somewhere now that it could return. Returning to the poem, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life's star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory. Do we come from God, who is our home? So here he's tapping into this idea of the pre-existence. He's like, I have this feeling inside me that we must have come from someplace else. The soul that is born into us hath had elsewhere its setting, and it rises with us. And this is very parallel to Plato's concept of the pre-existence of the soul. So where I'm, I'm getting at this is, he's not acting as a scientist. He's really deeply and passionately in tune to his place in nature, his place in the world, and sort of that inner fervor of what's going on and how he, like he, he's not pretending to do any literal science here, right? And that I think taps into sort of what Joseph was doing. Wordsworth makes room for, oh look, where did the visions and dreams go? Like there must be, nature tells us there must be something like that and, and it hopefully comes back and it came back in, G, in Joseph's time. This poem was written in, or published in 1807. Just to give you a, a flavor of this is what was going on at this time. Now let's look at William Blake. This is one of my favorite poems by William Blake. And it's a really creative approach. There were medieval legends that Jesus may have like took a random trip to England in his younger days. Uh, completely legendary. Mm -hmm. And Blake is saying, well, what if that happened? Let's talk about that. And here's what Blake says. This is 1804. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? 
and was the holy lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? Bring me my bow of burning gold, bring me my arrows of desire, bring me my spear, O clouds unfold, bring me my chariot of fire. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. So here you have some of the same things. You have the nature, you have this non-literal, passionate desire to see the kingdom of God built literally in England. I think what this does is if you look at the Book of Mormon and the DNC, it's very much about tapping into and grafting on the biblical narrative onto this continent in a way that increases our subjective participation and appreciation of it. Mm. Now I have one more poem. And this is from Mary Ty. This is 1806. And I'd like to thank Bryn Brody for sharing me this, with uh, sharing this poem with me. I, I've known about the other two. I didn't know about this one. It's called Hagar in the Desert, which Ooh, okay. I want to, for people who don't recall, Hagar was a, in Genesis, Genesis 16, a woman who was marginalized in a number of ways, her socioeconomic status, her status as a non-free person, her status as a person of color. She was an Egyptian um, in servitude to Abraham and Sarah. And she was the one who was tasked with bearing a child to Abraham when Sarah couldn't conceive. And then this child Ishmael and Hagar were sent out into the desert. And in this, God takes care of Hagar. God takes care of the marginalized. And actually there's a vision. Hagar has a vision of an angel. And here's what Mary Ty puts into the angel's mouth, speaking to Hagar. The angel says, Care of heaven, though man should forsake thee, wherefore vainly dost thou mourn? From thy dream of woe awake thee, to thy rescue to child return. Lift thine eyes, behold yon fountain, sparkling mid those fruitful trees. Lo, beneath yon sheltering mountain, smile for thee, green bowers of ease. In the hour of sore affliction, God hath seen and pitied thee. Cheer thee in the sweet conviction, thou henceforth his care shalt be. Be no more by doubts distressed, mother of a mighty race. By contempt no more oppressed, thou hast found a resting place. Part of the background of this is that Sarah awfully mistreated her after the birth of Ishmael out of jealousy and sent her away, and that's the oppression that this is talking about. My point in all this is to give some context that will embrace the first vision and saying here's kind of what was going on and it really makes a lot of sense thank you for that context because i'm just like where's Derek gonna go with this and this does set the stage rather nicely it sets for... the state for part two of what i'm gonna say oh okay yes so for part two of the say this is where i'm gonna trick the reader uh okay. the listener so here's my task for all the, i have a i don't really do this but i'm gonna ask the listeners to Listen to what I'm saying. I'm going to read an account of a vision of a young boy seeing the father and the son. And I want to ask you, who wrote this and what year? The public are here presented with a book written by an illiterate youth who has been highly favored of God and shown many things which he is now commanded to write. He earnestly solicits the candid attention of every reader that it may not stand as the useless parenthesis among the other books of the world. 
for it is written in obedience to the divine command as a testimony to show his calling. Care has been taken that nothing should be written but by the immediate command of the Lord, whose servant and prophet I am. And then he goes on later in his account to, to continue with these words. At length, as I lay apparently on the brink of eternal woe, seeing nothing but death before me, suddenly there came a sweet flow of the love of God to my soul, which gradually increased. At the same time, there appeared a small gleam of light in the room above the brightness of the sun, then at his meridian, which grew brighter and brighter. As this light and love increased, my sins began to separate, and the mountain removed towards the east. At length, being in an ecstasy of joy, I turned to the other side of the bed. Whether in the body or out, I cannot tell. God knoweth. There I saw two spirits, which I knew at the first sight. But if I had the tongue of an angel, I could not describe their glory. For they brought the joys of heaven with them. One was God, my Maker, almost in bodily shape like a man. His face was, as it were, a flame of fire, and his body, as it had been a pillar and a cloud. In looking steadfastly to discern features, I could see none, but a small glimpse would appear in some other place. Below him stood Jesus Christ, my Redeemer, in perfect shape like a man. His face was not ablaze, but had the countenance of fire being bright and shining. His Father's will appeared to be His. All was condescension, peace, and love. So, guess who wrote that? Or guess who did not write that? Let me tell you who did not write it. It was not Joseph Smith. It was someone named Norris Stearns, and this was written in 1815 in Greenfield, Massachusetts. So my point in all this is to say and this is brought up in one of Bushman's articles on this. It's called The Visionary World of Joseph Smith from uh, a number of decades ago. So Richard Bushman categorizes dozens of, quote, first vision type experiences throughout New England or America at this time. And what I want to say is this testifies to the way God prepared the context and the environment for something like what would happen with Joseph Smith. And all of these people were speaking into the same cultural context. And I think it makes a lot of sense about why Joseph framed his experiences this way when he explained it to others. He's using some of the, the same language. Now, I'm not saying that Joseph even knew about Stern's account. I think the more commonality is the, uh, the biblical overlap. Both of them were drawing upon the King James Version. You know the um, above the brightness of the sun? You know where that comes from? No. It comes from, if you read Paul's defense before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, uh, yeah. he says that when Jesus appeared, it was above the brightness of the sun at the, uh, on the road to Damascus. That's the light that uh, appeared. But anyway, so my point in this is we appreciate these things more if we situate them very thoroughly and very, very solidly in their cultural context, their cultural, historical, literary context. And so that's kind of where I want to bring these, bring these all together. And I don't think anyone's faith should be disturbed by the fact that there are parallels, but I think it's important to bring these out so we understand, oh, oh look, God is able to speak very clearly into the heart of this time and this place 
which implies that he could speak very clearly into our time and our place on any number of issues. So that's all I have for the background, and let's look at the time. Oh, this did not take that much time. <laughs> Good job, Derek. I'm proud of you. <laughs> all right. So uh, now we want to get into the actual content of Joseph Smith's history here. Again, we're just going to be going over these first 26 verses. And there was a couple things that I've noticed, and I don't know if I'd call them themes so much as simple observations. And the first observation I made was, despite Joseph Smith being young, despite him being undereducated, despite him not having any position of real status, or education wherewith to speak of, he was still privy enough to notice when things were off. I look at what he says in verse, I believe it is six. So notwithstanding the great love which the converts to these different faiths expressed, yada yada, skipping down, yet when the converts began to file off, some to one party and some to another, it was seen that the seemingly good feelings of both the priests and the converts were more pretended than real. For a scene of great confusion and bad feeling ensued, priest against priest, convert against convert, so that all their good feelings for one another, if they ever had any, were entirely lost in a strife of words and a contest about opinions. That is pretty... I mean, that's... I don't know if Joseph Smith's just an observant person or he's just demonstrating to us that you don't have to really be anybody at this time to know, to, to, to notice the pretense of the people in these churches or to notice that there's something a little bit off about, uh, you know, this setting that Joseph Smith finds himself in. And I noticed that there's a lot of similarities between what Joseph is experiencing and also sometimes what we might experience today in the church, particularly with how we treat people who have different mm -hmm. opinions or how we treat people who up and leave the church. We, and you know, a lot of people who've left the church say something along these lines, you know, even about members of their own family. It's almost as if they feel that the love they received from these people seemed conditional on their activity in the church. And I've noticed this with a lot of people I've seen leave the church. They will lament that they, you know, there's a lot of friends they don't have anymore because those friendships were conditional or at least felt like they were conditional on their faithfulness to the church. So I can totally see what Joseph Smith is talking about here. Yeah, I want to back up and talk about, as a, as a scholar of texts, we should always look at who was being addressed. And if you look at the very first verse, it says that this is, Okay, this is the, the um, 1838 account. Now, Joseph himself was responsible for either writing or dictating four different uh, accounts of the first vision, and there were other secondhand accounts of the first vision that he told to other people, and they reminisced and recorded those. So I, we don't have time. James is not going to let me have time to talk about all these visions. So I'm just going to talk about this one. You but can people read should the gospel know, topics essay. But people should know, like informed, educated people should know this um, there are multiple accounts you can go read them okay but this one why was it written it was written because of people's questions in for in the first verse it says i have been induced to write this history to disabuse the public mind and put all inquirers after truth in possession of the facts so look we in the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints love all inquirers of after truth we love people who are skeptics people who are going to double check things people who are going to do the homework we are a church that based on this verse should love transparency we should love accountability we should love 
diligent seeking after truth. We should love having everything out on the table. There's some within the church that want to kind of hide and and do like a dating profile church. Like you're just going to put the best pictures and the you know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, exactly what you're talking about. You're just going to put on your best pictures, your best face, your best thing. You're going to put all these quotes on there, and that's that's not what we want to do as the church. That's not what Jesus did. He got down into the grit, and uh, that's what what Joseph is doing here. He's saying, look, we want you to ask questions. We want you. To challenge us, we want you to go to us and 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 get the and you know and hear our side of the story and and not just um and it's okay to be skeptical and doubting and and then here's what we're going to tell you. So that's kind of what I wanted to say, and it does tie into the James one five because that is first of all the cool thing about Joseph is he knew the scriptures. I'm always going to be on the same team as people who who use the scriptures well, and he. What people miss is not just he read it and he asked of God, but he held God accountable to that promise. A lot of people think that we can't stand up to God. Joseph did. Queer people do. Like we, the best of us do. Rather than going along with the flow, when we stand up to God and hold God accountable to God's promises, we're showing faith. And that's, I think, the beauty of directly citing. He cites James 1 and 5 and says, look, I'm beginning with a question. It's okay to have questions, and there's power in knowing the scriptures well enough to use them to hold God accountable. Mm, big time. And I just want to make a little note here that this is the at least the third episode in a row where a reference is being made to an ability to keep God accountable, to hold God accountable, to be able to ask of him, and the responsibility we have to ask of him if we seek wisdom. Last week it was... Uh, in our discussion of DNC section 1 verse 38, the week before, it was our discussion of Moroni's promise. So anytime we see recurring themes in the scriptures, it's a good idea to probably take note of those and take them seriously. So now we get to this actual vision. I wanted to talk about what God actually, or sorry, I guess what Christ actually speaks to Joseph Smith uh, as per Joseph Smith's question. Which church should he join? And um, I haven't read the first vision in at least a year. So this time around reading it and reading it through this particular lens, some things stood out to me. And uh, we like to cite God's answer when we talk about the restoration, but I wanted to come at it from a little bit of a different direction. So uh, this is verse 19 in the history where Joseph Smith says, I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far, are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. So let me tell you who knew this already, first off. If Joseph Smith was black, he wouldn't have needed to be told this. Mm -hmm. He would have known. Mm -hmm. So like every black person, I believe at this time, anybody, I mean, slavery was still going on in the 1820s. They knew. Like when I read this, my mind went immediately to thinkers like uh, Ida B. Wells, especially, but also James Baldwin, mm -hmm. uh, Howard Thurman, Fannie Lou Hamer, just a bunch of people who had something to say about Christianity in the context of things like slavery, lynching, and later voter suppression, mass incarceration, and all kinds of institutional discriminations. 
But my point in bringing them up is they all made observations that implied or outright accused white America's brand of Christianity. They, they accused it of fraudulence due to the treatment faced by black people often mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. name of Christ. Racism at its root is, you know, it comes out of Christianity. People were using the Bible like race grew out of some grew out of Christianity. It grew out of a perverted interpretation of the Bible. Slavery at that time was the uh, thing. But like I said, later lynching, these were viewed as God-given rights or uh, necessities. And those are among the kinds of commandments of men that they were teaching as doctrines back then. And, uh, you know, like I said, black folk, we didn't need seminary. We didn't need to study theology or anything to know that something was off about white Christianity. We knew back then that the Christian identity of white people was not a true expression of what it meant to follow Jesus. White Christians back then were using their faith as a reason to enslave and later to lynch. And still, the silence of white Christians who weren't so barbaric also placed placed them outside of uh, identifying with the same Christ who raised hell when money changers profaned his father's house. So, like, as a community, you can't really support or ignore uh, slavery or lynching while still trying to represent he who was lynched by Rome. Often, when we cite this verse today, we need to be mindful of how we might be drawing near to the Lord with our lips, but our hearts are far from him, especially as we treat his children differently simply because of identities they espouse. Exactly. And I think that it's important to see the sort of the forward nature forward looking nature of what joseph was doing because it was all about what he's called to do not what he's already done Mm -hmm. and i think in the moment it could be very hard to see that christianity could ever change but it can i think in every generation there's going to be people who say well this can't ever change Mm -hmm. especially with racism in the in the 18th century and 19th century You've got a lot of people saying this is just the way it is. And I wonder how many of them, I, I imagine how many of them that are white could imagine something different. <laughs> I want to go on to talking about Joseph Smith's response to the actual persecution that he ended up receiving. There's a narrative of him telling people about his experience and then them denying it and uh, persecuting him because of mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. trying to tell trying to tell him that they know his experiences better than he does and him in spite of it all you know sticking to his guns yeah so, that's the, that's our trans siblings mm-hmm, mm-hmm. absolutely our trans siblings get denied by people who don't even know them but somehow mm-hmm. know them better than they do mm-hmm. like, you know people don't know that people don't think their name is wrong or their pronouns are wrong they know their own name and pronouns you're the one that doesn't know what you're talking about mm-hmm. if you deny a trans child of God the dignity that everyone else gets to have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I need people to know, and this harkens back to something you said earlier, Derek, about how we love people that ask questions. We love skeptics. We love to take an opportunity to learn as much as we can and to think deeply. I need people to know that if Joseph Smith accepted conventional wisdom about how God supposedly worked back in his day, we would not have a church. Yeah, preach it. This restored gospel that people love to confess their gratitude for in fast and testimony meeting, that gratitude is often undermined when they refuse to listen to LGBTQ people, when they refuse to listen to people on the margins in general. Look at what Joseph Smith, like, look what he writes here in some of these verses. 
Speaking of a preacher he spoke to, he says, he treated my communication not only lightly, but with great contempt, saying it was all of the devil, that there was no such things as visions. And, you know, that's all I need to read about that. But then he proceeds to deny Joseph's truth by saying that there were no such things as visions or revelations in these days. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. When Joseph Smith later talked about how strange it was for people to not only come after someone like him who literally threatened nobody, but to attack an experience that was his and not theirs, like, again, we see a lot of parallels there. Does that sound familiar? And then after all that uh, persecution and reviling, as is written in these verses, he still stood in his truth because he knew who he was and what he experienced, and he knew that God knew it too. And he could not deny that he, he could not deny what God knew, and he knew that he would offend God if he denied what he experienced mm-hmm. and who he was. Does that sound familiar? Like we as Latter-day Saints, we love to identify with the heroes. We love to identify with Nephi, with Alma and Amulek, with Helaman, with Jesus. Don't forget the women heroes as well. The women heroes, the few that we got here. Um, We love to identify with the heroes. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And uh, Joseph Smith, in this case, is the hero of this story. We love to aspire to his resolve to get answers. We love to aspire to his faith and to his resilience. But, uh, but right now, too many of us are acting like the preachers that persecuted him when, all, when we tell gay folks that there's not going to be more revelation concerning their place in this church. When we say there's no such thing as revelations concerning gay folks and those aren't coming back anytime soon. Yeah. We sound like those preachers when we deny the lived experience of LGBTQ folks when they tell us that what we're doing is hurting them. Amen. When, when they uh, seek greater inclusion and justice and we persist in denying it to them. Mm-hmm. We act like these preachers when we act like the authentic expression of gay identity is a sick or somehow yes. going to threaten us. Yep, and it. then we go out of our way to subsequently insult and belittle and otherwise persecute gay folks. Like, I'll just say again that we wouldn't have this church. We wouldn't be here. You and I wouldn't be here, Derek, right. if Joseph Smith didn't seek the truth and stand up in it when he found it. Mm-hmm. And we're not honoring Joseph's work when we treat marginalized people the way these preachers treated him. We're actually dishonoring it. We're undermining it. We're insulting it. This is one of the things that gets me about members of the church sometimes, bro. Like, we've seen this stuff yeah. before. We have seen this in our history. This is in our spiritual DNA. Our people have been oppressed. Our leaders have been oppressed. We have been on that side. Our leaders have been on this side. We have a very difficult time somehow still seeing how we embody the villains of our spiritual forebears. You know, I want, that brings out a really interesting point about why did G- Jesus pick Joseph? Yep. Why did he pick Joseph? Because, okay, imagine J- Jesus picking to start the restoration some dude who was very high class, who had a PhD from Columbia and who was fluent in Greek and Latin. Mm. Um, And God picked that person to start the restoration. It wouldn't have worked. Do you know why? It's because people who already think they know stuff aren't open (laughs) to anything new. Mm -hmm. Like you can see this with Charles Anthon. Like he heard about what's going on and he heard about the angels and the plates. He said, this is stupid and just threw it away. Like because he already thought he knew. Now I... I have to say, I'm in the boat with those overeducated snobby people, right? A little bit, (laughs) right? Okay. So I'm one of these overeducated people that knows so much about the scriptures that I sometimes don't think I need to know any, go elsewhere. But fortunately, I was grabbed ecstatically 
by something outside of myself that called me into this church. And that gets back to why I brought up this romanticism piece, because there's room, there's place for poetry, there's place for symbolism, there's place for music, there's place for this type of exploration that goes outside of intellectual learning. I'm not saying it's okay to be anti-intellectual, but right. I'm saying, you should know things. I'm saying that there's room for playfulness. There's mm -hmm. room for for poetry. There's room for for all these things in addition to just dealing with objective facts. That's not where where we connect with God. That's not where we connect with each other. Mhm. Mm and so I'm so glad, and that's, so the marginality of Joseph is actually essential to the restoration because God would not have picked a rich person, an educated person, a person who already knew all the answers because those were the people who rejected Joseph. Mm -hmm. Like he went to the trained clergy. Right. Like, now I'm all in favor of trained clergy, right? That's that's my heritage actually. And that's kind of who I would have been. But look what the trained clergy did. They already knew so they didn't, and that's what I know as an educator. Like the biggest, the biggest block to teaching someone something isn't ignorance. It's the fact. If it's it's better if they don't know anything at all than if they know the wrong thing. If they think they already know, because if people don't think they already know, they're 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 open. I tried once to look at all of the prophets throughout Scripture, and what did they have in common? They didn't have a lot in common. But one mm -hmm. thing that I think they had in common is all of the prophets seemed to be eager to latch onto something before they understand it. Like when Abraham was called to go in Genesis chapter 12 to a land that I will show you. He didn't even know where he was going. He said, go to a land that I will show you. And he stepped out before he even, he was willing to step out before he understood it. Like Joseph did so many things before he understood them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Moses, a lot of these, you know, people latched on to stuff before they fully understood it because what mm -hmm. the Lord's work really can't be understood. And there's a, there's some drawbacks to this because so Joseph was very easy, very eager to latch on to something good before he understood it. But also I think he was eager to latch on to things before he understood them and didn't implement them well, right? That's just part of the nature of who, who God's working with. Mm. So we have to to read that in context. Not every prophet did everything right. Mm. Sometimes their eagerness did any prophet do everything right, <laughs> besides right. Jesus? Right. That's my point. Is <laughs> is uh, they're gonna they're gonna mess up things out of their eagerness. Like mm -hmm. even Moses yeah. was too eager, and his eagerness didn't let him end up in the promised land. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I'm not gonna go into later in as we go through this year. We'll talk about some of Joseph's frailties in a very faithful way that does it's not about attacking anyone it's about glorifying god as the mm -hmm. source of perfection and just and being worship like, him alone we're still here like this, in spite of those things yeah this is the church of jesus christ it is not the ch church of joseph smith and fortunately for james it's not the church of Derek knox so you'd have awful jokes <laughs> as part of the curriculum every someday it would be come follow Derek's jokes curriculum mm -hmm. yeah we, so, we don't need that we don't need that mm -hmm. right but but I just love, I just love the restored gospel. It it makes sense, and it, there's a there's a place for me to fit in here and and to to join my passions with the restored gospel. And you know that's also a comforting thought for me as well. Like I don't, uh, you know, I don't consider myself 
like even though I have a college education, I still don't consider myself all that intelligent or all that well read or just, you know, I don't have the ability or the vocabulary to communicate things the way that, you know, that you do, Derek, or the way that some general authorities do. And I'm just like, there's a place for somebody who has, you know, all my weaknesses as a talker, all my weaknesses as a, you know, a, you know, a person, period. I got a short temper. I feel like sometimes that comes out as I talk on this show. But I'm also just like, you know, there's a place for people like me as well. People who are imperfect, people who still need to develop, you know, emotionally, spiritually or intellectually. Like there's still a place for us to go and there's still good work that we can do in spite of all those things. It really is a wonderful thing. Right. But And there's a place for you because you're an inquirer after truth, mm-hmm. a passionate seeker of truth like Joseph. Like mm-hmm. he was not satisfied w- with what he'd been told. Mm-hmm. There's so many Latter-day Saints that are satisfied with what they've been told. I'm like... Or they're satisfied with who they are even. Like, I feel like one of my strengths as a person is that I have the ability to hear God when the answer is no. I've I've cultivated that particular ability since I was a missionary, and that's never left me. Like, when there's stuff for me to work on, I'd like to believe that I can hear that from God and act appropriately. I'm not perfect at that, but that is something I actively work toward, is not only being an earnest seeker of truth, but also being able to you know, let the Lord call me out lest I, like one of my biggest Mm -hmm. fears is being the exact same person I am right now in 10 years. Because I know so many people in their 40s, 50s, 60s who are in essence the same people they were 20 years ago. That is frightens me. I don't, I don't want to be like that. And you know, when I, when I try to look in my head through back through the scriptures, I can't think of any one example of someone who has ever condemned for asking for more truth. Absolutely not. There's and and but the we queer people, we ask for more truth and somehow we're bad. I mean like no. No one in the scriptures ever as far as I can remember, no one has ever been condemned for wanting more truth. For the sake of argument, I'm only going to acknowledge the people who might disagree with you when they talk about sections 8 and 9 in the DNC. And I wouldn't say that so much as a condemnation for seeking truth. I see that as, at most, a condemnation for seeking truth when people had no business seeking that truth mm, because they yeah. haven't done the work. Yeah, and that particular, well, that's true. Yeah, and that but that's pa- not a true seeker after truth, is you do I, the Yeah, homework. I was about to get there. Yeah. Like, you got to do the homework. And uh, I don't want to spoil it because I think that's one of the next few lessons. But basically, if we are to receive revelation, if we are going to receive anything from the Lord, we have to ask with real intent. We have to, you know, do our homework, do our study, and be willing to receive the answer once we, you know, do receive that answer. Mm -hmm. And ask with real intent. I think that's the key, is Joseph had Mm -hmm. real intent. He was willing to act on whatever it was he he went in there to pray and get. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. But anyway, before we get into these housekeeping items, I uh, just want to let you guys know that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes, oh sorry, Apple Podcasts, or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Mm-hmm. We got any events coming up? Anything? Do you got anything coming up? No. 
No, I don't think I have anything coming up. Okay. No speaking engagements for Derek yet. But, you know, there's inevitably going to be one, and we'll let you know when it happens. Oh, I should let people know that Jill Hazard Rowe interviewed me on her podcast. Oh, yes, sir. Called um, Human Stories with Jill Hazard Rowe. Mm -hmm. So you can go back and find my episode there. And don't think, oh, I've already heard everything from Derek. Because I said stuff on there that I've never said anywhere else. Derek is always saying new stuff. Derek, if y'all don't know this about him, he prides himself on having original content at everything he does. It drives me nuts a little bit because I'm just like, Derek, I know why people are inviting you to talk. So just say the things they invited you to say. But Derek is also just like, no, if people are going to invite (laughs) me to come and speak to them, I want to give them a gift that nobody else is getting. Derek is like a concert artist. And that I kind of respect. But at the same time, I'm just like, that sounds like so much work. And I don't. But no, it's an opportunity for growth. It absolutely is an opportunity for 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 me, for everyone. Like I need to come up with something new. (laughs) It just sounds like so much work. And, you know, I envy your ability to do that. But also just thinking about you doing that makes me a little angry because I'm just Mm -hmm. like. Well, which makes you angrier, my jokes or my passion for creating something new? Oh, definitely your jokes. Oh, definitely your jokes. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Your jokes that are. The, the, the jokes that you put effort in. Like, Derek is naturally funny, and he doesn't really believe this. He thinks he has to tell jokes to be funny, but Derek is just funny. And I'm just like, Derek, just be you, man. But as soon as the dad jokes come out, I'm just like, I, I need a sabbatical. And I want to give people a, a charge for this coming week. Think of some way to hold God accountable this week. Mm. In your prayer, in your scripture reading, I kind of like this idea of leaving people with a practical, you know, I, I'm an educator, I love giving homework, so here's your homework, which <laughs> you don't have to do if you don't want to, because it's, it's pandemic time, and, but anyway, yeah, think about how to empower yourself by saying, you know, you have the platform to hold God accountable. And the more you know God's promises in Scripture, the more you can hold God accountable to those promises and demand everything that God has for you. God loves you and is very eager to to grant you these things. But latch on to them and make sure that uh, you know that that's, that's what you're supposed to do. Hmm. Okay. And also, since it's a new year, we're going to be launching some new things. By the time this episode drops, we will have uh, launched a new video, our first in a series of hopefully many more to come featuring both Derek and myself. And also, uh, our store will have been launched. We will have launched a beyond-the-block shop full of different kinds of merch, mostly apparel, though. So definitely check that out. You can access it from our website. Just go to the menu, and you can see the link that says BTB shop, get yourselves some of our shirts and whatnot. You look dapper in them. All right. With that, guys, uh, welcome to the new year. Hopefully going to have a lot of new stuff for y'all. Thank you for joining us till we meet again next week. Bye, everyone.